This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The Senate delayed its vote, but Republicans in Washington are still working on health care reform. They're grappling in part with a prediction that 22 million people would lose insurance coverage under the latest bill. The city of Pueblo offers a picture of what that loss could mean to people. 20,000 county residents got on Medicaid because of the Affordable Care Act. And according to Donald Moore, their overall health improved. Moore leads the Pueblo Community Health Center. And Donald, welcome to the program. Hi, Andrea. Today, about 40 percent of Pueblo residents are on Medicaid. Talk about the effects of more people getting coverage. Well, the the effects have been positive. Uh, just a little bit of history. In 2009, before Obamacare, almost one out of five uh, folks in our community was uninsured, which means they lacked access to care. And um, since uh, Obamacare went into effect, um, that's been driven down 64 percent to only 6 percent of the community uninsured. And the expanded Medicaid is a um, big reason for that. Um, the benefit of that is patients are uh, receiving primary care, they're receiving preventative care, and they're um, avoiding utilization of very expensive services in the system. A lot has been said about uh, folks uh – avoiding emergency room visits when people have coverage, um, and that when they don't have a medical home, they head to the ER, and that that drives up costs for everyone. How do you know for sure that more people on Medicaid in recent years has kept people out of emergency rooms and driven down costs? Um, I understand some people on Medicaid still visit emergency rooms as their first stop for medical care. Sure. Uh, anyone with Medicaid um, can access uh, the emergency room and any other services uh, covered by the program. But when um, Medicaid expanded, it removed the financial barrier to accessing uh, care in a primary care setting. And the state has been very proactive in how they implemented the uh, expanded Medicaid benefit. And as they enrolled new populations into the benefit, they uh, worked with providers and communities to make sure that a patient established care with a primary care provider so that that doctor's office or clinic could uh, coordinate all aspects of their care, educate the patient to utilize uh, primary and preventative services. And I'm not here to say that... um, ER use has stopped, but um, early indications from the data that the state shares with communities shows that we are starting to curb that behavior, and that's a positive thing. What are your Medicaid patients like? Can you give us a sense of where they are in life, whether they're working? Sure. Yeah. Um, certainly, Medicaid, uh, bef- before the Affordable Care Act, um, uh served um, disabled folks uh, and low-income kids and and moms and families. Um, Medicaid is a safety net program. It's there for the most uh, vulnerable populations. Um, it take care it take care of low-income seniors who have to be in a nursing home. But um, in addition to that traditional population, uh, when Medicaid expanded, um, uh, it started serving, um, People who have jobs but um, don't have access to affordable benefits either through their employer 
or in the marketplace. And I was at a meeting with state officials a couple of weeks ago, and Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn shared that three-fourths of everybody um, that utilizes the uh, Medicaid program um, that aren't kids um, are actually working. And um, they draw a paycheck. They pay taxes, which, of course, helps fund the state government and the federal government. And Medicaid provides them access to uh, affordable coverage and uh, therefore access uh, to services to keep them healthy and and to help the system control costs. Uh, another population um, that the me- expanded Medicaid um, program is reaching are people who have uh, chosen to go on to college or community college and or even master's degree. And when you're a full-time student, it's hard to have a full-time job and income at the same time. And so these are folks who can maintain access to care and a relationship with a trusting provider while they get an education and uh, presumably upgrade their skills and can reenter the workforce, um, earn more income, contribute more to society. So the traditional uh, face of Medicaid definitely has changed um, with the Affordable Care Act. And um, the expansion of Medicaid um, raised the threshold to 138% of poverty. um, And Mm -hmm. that's a family of four with an income of about $34,000. As we said, 40% of Pueblo's population gets their health insurance through Medicaid. In Colorado as a whole, the percentage is much lower, about 25%. Medicaid, as you said, also pays for nursing home care and for people with disabilities. The Republican bill that senators delayed a vote on this week phases out funding for Medicaid expansion over the next seven years. What would the impact be on your community? Well, I'm very concerned that that bill would go in effect and have um, a repeal of the expansion. And I think it would be um, there'd be several negative effects. The first is. the costs of health care, I think, are going to go up. Medicaid covers um, low-income populations. Low-income populations tend to be at higher risk for uh, disease and um, higher risk for um, putting off care until it becomes really bad and expensive to treat. And so if they repeal the expanded population, I would expect um, you know, patients not to have a PCP, their care would a be less A primary care provider. Correct. A primary care provider, that a, a health care professional that they trust with their health care needs. Um, there would be less prevention. Um, serious problems would be detected later rather than earlier and treated uh, more successfully and at a lower cost. And um, that that all leads to worse, worse health, which leads to a less productive workforce and uh, lower quality of life in the community community. So um, I joke around with my uh, local hospital CEOs and I, and I say, you know, we got we to gotta speak out against this repeal because if, it, if they do, your emergency rooms are going to be overrun. Mm. You're going to need to hire more ER docs, nurses, and you're going to have to expand your facility to take on um, the increased demand because people's needs don't go away because a bill is passed or not passed in D.C., um, people have health care needs, and they're going to seek out ways to meet those needs. And under federal law, hospitals are required to serve those who show up right. in their emergency rooms, which is a very expensive care setting. I think it's important to point out when we're talking about costs that 
Republicans say the feds uh, pay more of the cost for people who got on Medicaid through this expansion than they do for people who are already on Medicaid. So they see an opportunity for savings and what they view as more long-term sustainability for the program. What about concerns about costs, um, that they're just too out of control under the current system um, in terms of what the feds are paying? Well, it is a it is um, pressure on the federal budget, and I'm aware and cognizant that that um, there are budget issues at the federal uh, level that need to be addressed. But if if the current bill passes, it's going to be a major cost shift from the federal level to the state level. And um, in 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 reading up on the bill and trying to understand what would change, um, I read a researcher at Georgetown Health Policy Institute. Her name is Sabrina Corlett. And she quoted that the um, cost of subsidizing private insurance through tax credit is more expensive than the cost of the federal share, even at 90% of the cost that they're they're covering, is more expensive than the tax subsidies. Now, I haven't been so able to validate- So private insurance more expensive than, um, yeah. than being on Medicaid. She, yeah, and the the quote didn't come along with data, so I did a little research on my own. I know from our state Medicaid program that uh, on average, uh, the monthly cost for to take care of a patient is about uh, four hundred dollars per person per month. I looked up how much it cost Pueblo Community Health Center to provide um, health coverage for our employees, a single employee, and that cost is five hundred and thirty four dollars. So I think. My recommendation to policymakers would be to crunch the numbers a little more. I, I really do appreciate that um, the Senate bill recognizes that the working poor need financial help to access care and have coverage. I think that's a positive thing about the bill. But I think they may be moving in a direction that's less cost effective than utilizing um, a proven program like Medicaid. And we're talking really about, uh, in order to save money, the idea Republicans have is to essentially transfer those costs to the states um, or cut down the number of people who can have insurance uh, through the government. And so senators need to decide if those sacrifices are worth it. Um, and this debate over health care reform is so often turned into a political question, Republicans versus Democrats. And from where you sit, and you've been doing this for almost 20 years, if the goal is to get people good health care at a low cost, what do you see that's missing from the debate? Well, I, I think I think the lawmakers did several um, positive things in, in their bill, and they just need to keep improving it. Um, you know, the ACA did fall short of its goal to increase participation in health insurance. I, I think they got halfway to their projected amount. So I think it is right that they're reexamining new ways to increase coverage. Um, I mentioned that um, they recognize that working poor need help. That's awesome. They also um, are linked into the idea that state by state, if they're given more flexibility, more innovation in healthcare can occur. And I really think that the innovation and a greater focus on value, not just financing of insurance, is where the long-term savings can occur. Um, 
Healthcare costs are determined by the cost of the care and how much that care is utilized and and the utilization at what level. And so from my perspective, the long-term fix to the high cost of healthcare is more primary care, more prevention, more early detection of uh, disease so that can be treated in a lower cost setting, and um, helping patients gain greater control over their over their own health care. Hmm. Because you and I have the biggest influence on on how healthy we are by our lifestyle choices and and how we choose to utilize the system. So um, I'd like to see lawmakers talk more about innovating and creating more value in health care, how patients, state governments, federal governments can share costs and the responsibility. Um, we got to address the long-term trends to push down the demand on healthcare. We're living in a society where we have an aging population, and um, by definition, as you get older, you need more healthcare. So demand is going up, but there's so much uh, prevention that can occur at the primary care level that I would like to see the law focus much more on that rather than just how do we subsidize the current cost of healthcare. Let's focus on changing the cost of healthcare. 400,000 Coloradans got coverage through Medicaid expansion. One of them was Rachel Graves from Aurora, and she spoke with CPR health reporter John Daly last week at a rally against Republican health care bills. And she got very emotional talking about a long-term illness that required her to leave work, and that's why she ended up on Medicaid. And she's worried that she'll lose that coverage and protections for people with pre-existing conditions under the Republican plans. For me... It's going to be like a race against the clock of can I get well in time to have a job before, um, you know, before I can no longer get insurance. Um, It's also going to mean that I can't just take whatever job I can get. I'm going to have to pick and choose based on their insurance plans. Now, Graves is a lawyer by training, and she said she could start a private practice, but then her pre-existing condition might not be covered. Uh, so that's one Coloradan story. The Medicaid expansion has also allowed some innovation. You talked about innovation in Colorado and in Pueblo in particular. And I understand that's true when it comes to mental he- health care in your community. Correct. Um, when um, Medicaid expanded to the new populations, um, it it enabled them to access a mental health benefit as well as uh, support for substance abuse and other behavioral health conditions. And um, what we know in the healthcare field is that patients who uh, tend to utilize the most services and consume the greatest amount of costs typically have a mental health condition uh, occurring alongside a physical health condition. So, the expanded Medicaid means that more patients got into a primary care setting in which we had an opportunity to integrate physical health needs and behavioral health needs. For example, at Public Community Health Center, if a patient comes in today to see the doctor for uh, pain or maybe they're there just for a routine checkup on their diabetes, um, we screen them for depression. Uh, that's a routine screening we do on all of our patients. And if that screening shows that um, they could be uh, ailing from depression, 
the Medicaid funding has enabled us to hire clinical social workers who are literally in the office next door to the exam room, and the patient is able to have that need met in the primary care setting and doesn't have to go to another agency, doesn't have to go to another site that we may have. Um, they don't have to delay the care. They gets, it happens all in that so one setting. In this case, you're really being proactive um, on this. And you also sit on the board of the city and county health department, and you have a concern about how these new health care bills would affect that group's work to respond to public health emergencies. What's the concern there? Well, the the law um, um, cuts the funding for the Prevention and Public Health Fund, and it's about a billion annually at the federal level, and uh, about two-thirds of that is given out to the states for programs. And these are programs like immunizations, um, disease monitoring and response. Um, last uh, two weekends in ago in Pueblo, we had a disaster exercise um, around a disease outbreak. And um, our local public health department um, organized the community to do a training exercise of how we we respond if there was a, a massive public health emergency in the community. And it was a very successful exercise. It prepared the community. It raised awareness. Uh, I'm afraid that if uh, the public health fund goes away, we won't be able to uh, protect our community's health and secure it like we've been able to do um, with that funding. Donald, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your interest. Thank you. Donald Moore is CEO of the Pueblo Community Health Center. We talked about what health care reform efforts in Congress will mean for his community. Most significant, he says, are proposed cuts to Medicaid, which ensures more than 40 percent of Pueblo's population. This is part of our ongoing coverage of health care reform efforts in Washington and how they affect Coloradans. Yesterday, we spoke with small business owners who hope to see big changes to the Affordable Care Act. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Some motels in Aurora aren't just a place to stay for the night. For many, they're home. Leon Elkins and his wife Sandy have lived in the Kings Inn Motor Hotel on East Colfax for 15 years, but not for much longer. We're living on borrowed time, basically. The Kings Inn recently changed hands. Elkins worked as a security guard at the motel to pay for his rent. Earlier this month, the new owner told Elkins his help was no longer needed and that rent for his two rooms would be $2,400 a month. We won't literally be on the street. You know, we'll have to do something. But I worry about other people, too. Other residents saw their rents more than double. It set off an emergency search for new housing. Elkins has been scouring online listings for homes, but he says he isn't finding much he can afford. Everything can't be $2,000 a month. It can't be. That's it. Got to have affordable housing for families. You have to have it. Megan Visna is helping residents in the King's Inn relocate. She leads the Colfax Community Network, a nonprofit that helps families living in motels in Aurora. And Megan, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So Elkins isn't the exception at the King's Inn. Uh, most residents have lived there for years, even decades. How did people end up at motels like this one for so long? Yeah, so... 
folks who are residing at the King's Inn, it's it's not an accident. Uh, folks have tried other routes to obtain housing, and for any number of reasons, there have been barriers. We see these barriers um, in terms of felonies, um, uh, any other kind of criminal background, or uh, poor credit history. Um, We also see evictions. um, And when we have somebody who's working even full-time on a minimum wage job, people just aren't making enough to to pay for their own place in the housing market that we experience. So it's not just because uh, the motels are cheap. Um, It's that they don't always run background and credit checks when you show up, right? Exactly. They're accessible to just about anybody. What did you do when you heard about the rent hikes at at King's Inn? Yeah, so we um, have been working with folks at the King's Inn for years now and fortunately have great relationships there. So we had heard that this was coming down the pike and um, were able to respond rapidly to the the crisis that ensued. Um, We set up an office in the parking lot and were able to to offer assessments, referrals, resources, just as soon as we heard what was happening. Um, And and that really helped folks who were in crisis mode. And the city of Aurora approved funding to help residents relocate. How successful have you been at getting folks into new homes? So we have so far placed um, over nine units um, that uh, might have more than one family. So it's dozens of families have been relocated from the King's Inn. The money from the city of Aurora has helped um, incredibly by allowing us to support families with deposit and first month's rent, which is extremely hard to save when you're living day to day and don't have the ability to, to put money away for that kind of big transition in your life. Um, We have also worked with a number of incredible community partners to get people into housing programs, um, transitional programs, and uh, supportive programs that will help them to be successful in in apartments. My understanding is that conditions are pretty rough at the motel. Um, They have mice, bed bugs. um, And I wonder if these relocations have improved people's living conditions. Yeah, in a lot of ways they have. Um, In a lot of ways, we have seen folks say, you know, we're so grateful for this support. This has been an incredible experience. What started out as a, a really terrifying moment has actually led to us being able to secure a home that we might not have ever received. Um, but it it's important to note that that came from a, a moment of crisis mm. and that this is not the norm for a lot of folks. Now, the new owner of the motel uh, is a man named Avi Schwab, and he owns a number of other motels in Aurora and says he's raising rent at the King's Inn to pay for improvements. I'm here to let people live here and make money and, and let them live like a human being. I didn't buy this place to make it worse. I bought this place to make it better. And we've talked about how bad conditions are there. Um, Didn't something need to be done eventually in terms of these conditions? Sure. I think we we look at motels and we say this isn't the ideal long-term situation. Um, And neither is how this crisis unfolded. Um, Rates that were doubled or tripled overnight with no written warning and rates that were increased without any of those improvements happening. Um, And so we see folks who are still living in squalor paying thousands of dollars for the same room that uh, they could afford 
two days ago. Um, so perhaps the way he went about it is is absolutely not um, not what we would have liked to see. Um, are motels a long term answer? They might not be, and maybe they are. Um, certainly, there's um, not enough shelter beds. There are not enough um, transitional housing beds. There aren't enough affordable housing units. And so they certainly were and have been a, a piece of the housing puzzle. Is it really fair, though, to expect motel owners like Schwab to basically operate what are permanent shelters for low-income people in Aurora? Um, although, of course, they, they are paying rent for these. Yeah, I you know I think what we see, um, and from our perspective, this is really a human rights humanitarian issue. Um, and so, while we understand there is a business aspect to this, there is also a human aspect to this. And uh, we respect his um, desire to increase his profit margin. Absolutely, uh, we understand where we live, um, and we also understand that um, this is not just any other apartment building. This is a piece of the community that holds a very unique purpose in the community and and something that perhaps he came in without understanding. Can he get the kind of rent he's asking for now? Um, as long as the King's Inn is along Colfax, there will be folks who will use the King's Inn. Um, what's happening now is that he is um, turning this motel into a nightly motel, which is very different than what it has been. Now, he says that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's already happening and we're already seeing um, shifts in the culture of the Kings moving from families and a real community-based environment to um, a much more transient and less um, invested kind of person who's coming. Now, when it comes to eviction, um, I understand motel residents have different rights from apartment tenants. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So while somebody has been living at the King's Inn for 15, 20 years, uh, they have never signed a legal lease because it is an apartment or because it is a motel, motel rather. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what that means is they have less legal recourse um, if something were to happen. And it puts them in a really tricky, rather gray spot in, in terms of the law. And so what we have been doing is looking at what, um, what folks are legally um, entitled to as tenants of a, of a motel and tenants who have spent more than 30 days there, which then gives them a little more uh, room within the law. How much do you worry that this is the beginning of a trend um, with gentrification, uh, perhaps that you'll be helping a lot more hotel motel residents move? Yeah. When I first started at Colfax Community Network, um, this was one of my biggest fears, and it has become a nightmare realized. And we are absolutely concerned that this will continue happening. Um, the area that Kings is located in has experienced a lot of gentrification from all directions. And I think it begs a much broader conversation about what we will do in this community for folks who can't afford to to live where they've where they've grown up. Megan, thanks so much for yeah. being here. Thank you. Thanks so much. Megan Visna is executive director at the Colfax Community Network. She's part of a coordinated effort to relocate residents of the King King's Inn Motel on East Colfax. Colorado Matters is taking a look at Colfax Avenue, its past, present, and potential future. Next week, we'll hear about how Denver's trying to get gentrification right in one stretch of the iconic avenue. 
excitement is building for what's being called the Great American Eclipse. A total solar eclipse will cross the nation on August 21st. It will pass just north of Colorado in Wyoming. The same anticipation filled the air back in 1878 when scientists and others from across the country flocked to Colorado and Wyoming to witness another total solar eclipse. David Barron is a former NPR science correspondent who lives in Boulder. His new book about the 1878 eclipse is called American Eclipse, A Nation's Epic Race to Catch the Shadow of the Moon and the Glory of the World. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. A total solar eclipse is when the moon comes directly between the Earth and the sun, blocking it out completely for a few minutes. And I understand you've witnessed these before. What's it like to watch them? It is otherworldly. A total solar eclipse is like nothing else. Uh, You've probably seen a partial solar eclipse. Many people have. When the moon passes in front of part of the sun, you can't look at the sun safely with the naked eye. But if you use special glasses, you'll see the sun turn into a crescent. A total solar eclipse is fundamentally different. During those two or three minutes when the moon completely covers the sun's face, it goes dark in the middle of the day, not like midnight, but like twilight. And you can actually see stars and planets in the daytime, and you can see the sun's outer atmosphere, the solar corona, which I tell you is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in the sky. And you can look at that directly? You can look at it with the naked eye. So here in Denver on August 21st, it will never be a total eclipse. But if you're in the right part of Wyoming or Nebraska, during the two and a half minutes or so of total eclipse, you can safely look at the sun with the naked eye. When was the last solar eclipse in the United States? The last one in the continental United States was in 1979. This is a total solar eclipse. Correct. And that was in the Pacific Northwest. But the last total solar eclipse to cross the country coast to coast was in 1918. So Mm -hmm. this is the first time in 99 years for one to cross the country coast to coast. Your book is about the eclipse of 1878, but in many ways it's a portrait of that time in history. How would you describe America at the time? It's a fascinating time in American history. So here, 1878, the the United States had just turned 100 years old two years before. We were an adolescent nation. We were were becoming very powerful industrially, but Europe kind of looked down on us intellectually. We weren't known for being terribly intellectual, and that included the sciences. And this was a chance— for the United States to prove what it could do in science on the global stage. So here it was, the time of the Wild West, the Gilded Age, uh, but it was also when America was just starting to get its act together and to become what it would a few decades later, which is the, the world's leader in science. And how much hype was there back then around the eclipse? Can oh, you describe so, it? so, so much. And it's so similar to what we are going to see this year. You know, the, the eclipse-chasing experience is fundamentally the same today as it was in 1878. So, That year, the path of totality, that is the path of the moon's shadow, went right over Denver. And Denver was inundated with tourists. Uh, The hotels ran out of rooms. The the people slept on cots in hotel parlors Mm. and dining rooms. And one gentleman reportedly slept on a billiard table. Uh, So tourists came in. Scientists came in. The newspapers had front page coverage. Uh, it was, and the day of the eclipse was effectively a holiday in in, uh, in Denver and in Boulder. 
I find it striking how scientists on the East Coast viewed the West at that time. And uh, as they planned expeditions to view the eclipse, they sound like they're putting their lives on the line. Um, One scientist is warned by a friend, take care of not being scalped by the Indians. Um, Colorado had been a state for two years. Was traveling to this area really dangerous? Well, you know, it it was. I mean, clearly you could come out here on a train in great comfort, as they did. But train robbery was a real problem. In fact, the train—so one of the the most famous person to come out for the eclipse of 1878 was Thomas Edison. Mm -hmm. He went to Rawlins, Wyoming. The very train that he was on a couple of weeks before had been robbed at at gunpoint. So so train robbery was a real risk. And this was a time of of conflict between the settlers and Native Americans. There were a number of Indian wars. Uh, Custer's last stand was in 1876. So you know, certainly the danger from conflict with Native Americans was exaggerated, but it was real. And uh, you talk about celebrities coming, uh, many of them with something actually to prove. Uh, Thomas Edison was one of them. He came from New Jersey to see the solar eclipse. And what was he trying to prove back in 1878? So this was a fascinating time in Thomas Edison's life. Thomas Edison was just 31 years old. He had just been launched to to become a celebrity. He uh, he had just invented the phonograph. Well, in 1878, he came out west with a private group of astronomers to study the solar eclipse. He actually um, fancied himself not just an inventor, but something of a scientist. And he had invented something called the tesimeter, which was a, a very sensitive heat detector that he was going to use to study the eclipsed sun to see if the, what's visible around the sun during a total eclipse, which we know today is the sun's outer atmosphere, he was going to see if it gave off heat as well as light. And this was his chance to prove himself not just an inventor, but actually a scientist. And did the tesimeter work? It kind of did, actually. It, so it was effectively an infrared detector, a very early and clunky one. Uh, and Edison, during the eclipse, uh, was able to detect heat in the solar corona. Uh, in the end, I mean, there was one newspaper at the time that said the tesimeter was going to be bigger than the phonograph. Now, mm. in hindsight, we know that's Didn't not happen. true. But uh, it, the, the tesimeter worked, but it, in the end, it wasn't a very effective device, and it was surpassed by other infrared detectors shortly thereafter. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Anticipation is brewing. On August 21st, a total solar eclipse will pass through Wyoming, just north of Colorado. About 140 years ago, people flocked to Colorado and Wyoming to see the 1878 total solar eclipse. We're talking with David Barron about his book, American Eclipse. It talks about the importance of the 1878 eclipse at that point in history. David, one eclipse chaser back then was a famous woman. Mariah Mitchell was an astronomer at Vassar College, the first woman elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She took a group of women with her to see the eclipse. How common was it back then um, to be a female scientist um, and, for that matter, to lead an expedition like this? Oh, this was very unusual. And uh, I just adore Mariah Mitchell. Mariah Mitchell was by far the best-known female scientist in America back in the 19th century. Uh, But this was a time when it was extraordinarily difficult to be a working scientist if you were a woman. And, I mean, there were so many societal biases against it. In fact, uh, kind of the the context for Mariah Mitchell's all-female 
expedition to Denver. This was the only group of women to come out here in 1878 for the eclipse. Uh, She was um, coming up against uh, a book that had come out a few years before that claimed, and I kid you not, that higher education could ruin a, a girl's health, that actually... If a, if a maturing girl used her brain too much, it sapped resources from her uh, maturing reproductive organs and could turn her into a masculine, sterile invalid. Mm-hmm. So Mariah Mitchell, with that as a backdrop, in essence brings this all-female expedition to Denver not only to do science but to show the American public that women could be smart, they could be educated, they could be – uh, scientifically oriented, healthy, and feminine, and it was just wonderful to see the the reaction of the press and the public to her to her remarkable expedition that year. Yeah, talk a little bit more about how the public reacted to it. Well, so you know, this was a time when, uh, frankly, when women were stepping out of bounds too much, they were often harshly, harshly ridiculed in the newspapers. I saw none of that with Mariah Mitchell. There was here in Denver, right here on the frontier. Uh, the newspapers were just writing gushing profiles of her. And the day after the eclipse of 1878, she gives a public lecture about astronomy and about uh, Caroline Herschel, who was a famous female astronomer in England. And uh, and the reports in the paper that, you know, that people came to her talk and it was a crowded event and they gave her flowers afterwards. Uh, she really helped to inspire folks here uh, in Colorado back then. That uh, that women deserved an equal place, both in education and eventually the right to vote as well. Another noted astronomer who came west for the 1878 eclipse was James Craig Watson, a professor at the University of Michigan. And I understand he was quite a character. He was. He was. And he had a, a, a huge ego. He thought great things of himself. And he he had great plans for the eclipse of 1878. Uh, James Craig Watson was known in that era as a planet hunter. He was particularly good at finding asteroids. And back in that era, asteroids were considered planets. They were called minor planets. But finding them was a very big deal. And James Craig Watson was particularly good at that. Um, in 1878, though, he came out to Wyoming for the eclipse to look for a planet called Vulcan, which many astronomers believed existed between Mercury and the Sun. Um, Mercury's orbit suggested that it seemed there was some mass between it and, and the Sun, and the explanation was, well, there must be a planet there. No one had ever reliably seen it, uh, which isn't a surprise. It's so close to the Sun, you couldn't see it at night, and you wouldn't be visible in the daytime in the Sun's glare. But during a total eclipse, when the moon very briefly covers the bright face of the sun, you might spot a planet right near the sun. And James Craig Watson was determined to find Vulcan during the eclipse of 1878. And the day after the eclipse, a Wyoming headline declared that he had, in fact, found the planet Vulcan. Correct. And I mean, so that was, I have to say, the big headline everywhere after the eclipse of 1878 that James Craig Watson, an American astronomer, had found the planet Vulcan, which people had been looking for for decades. Um, I mean, we know today, of course, that Watson was wrong. Watson, though, as I said, he he had quite the ego. And he, even when over time people started to question if his, if his finding was right, he would not accept there was 
any chance that he'd been wrong. And he was so convinced he was right, he came up with kind of a, a wacky plan for proving that that Vulcan existed. And he quite literally worked himself to death two years after the eclipse at age 42. To try to prove himself. Well, it was he had this insane plan to build an underground observatory that uh, he had this, there's this old idea which is not true, that if you go down in a dark well deep enough or in a mine shaft and you look up at the sky in the daytime, you'll see the stars. And so he thought, well, if I if I build a, a, an observatory deep underground with a telescope tube going up through the Earth and look at the sky, maybe I'll be able to spot Vulcan in the daytime, even without an eclipse. It, it, the telescope didn't work. It was mm-hmm. a crazy idea. And he died uh, trying to, to make it work. We've talked about visiting scientists. What did ordinary Coloradans do during the eclipse back in 1878? Again, it's so similar to what's going to happen now on August 21st up in Wyoming. Uh, people just flocked the streets. You know, the, the, the stores were closed. Folks got eclipse glasses. Now today, and anyone who looks at the partial phases of the eclipse, you should get yourself some uh, inexpensive eclipse glasses with really, really dark lenses. Back in 1878, they didn't have those. But newsboys sold pieces of colored glass on the streets or they smoked glass over flames, not considered safe by modern standards, but that's what they used for eclipse glasses back then. And folks just were just marveled, marveled at the site. Um, yeah, it was it was a day to remember, certainly. And um, in terms of, you know, the country and for Colorado, how important was this eclipse? I mean, this, there's so many stories behind it. You know, talk about that a little bit more. So uh, as, I, as I said, the big headline out of the eclipse of 1878 was the discovery of the planet Vulcan. We know in hindsight that was incorrect. The other big headline was Edison's tesimeter, his heat detector, and what a great new invention it was. In hindsight, we know that that didn't pan out. And for those reasons, I think the eclipse of 1878 has been forgotten. I've lived in Colorado for almost 20 years. Until I started work on the book, I'd never heard about a total eclipse that went over the state in 1878. However, even though from a scientific standpoint things didn't pan out, the remarkable thing is from a societal standpoint, the eclipse of 1878 was really important. It came at a time when America was when just trying to get its act together in science and when it needed a boost and when you had this small group of American scientists who were trying to get the American public to support science and get excited about science, here comes the very event that they needed, that there was so much excitement all across the country about the eclipse and about Americans cheering on their home team of astronomers. It kind of gave a little boost to this to America's slowly building infrastructure of science. And, you know, it's exactly what a democracy needs. If a democracy, an egalitarian democracy, is going to do science, you need the general public to accept that science is worthy of investment. And that's something that came out of the eclipse of 1878. And as we said, a total solar eclipse will cross the United States on August 21st. The center will pass right through Wyoming. 
Talk about what your plans are for this. So I will be in Jackson, Wyoming. I've had these plans now for the last three years. I booked my hotel there three years ago, and frankly, there really isn't any lodging left to speak of anywhere in the path of the So the hotels are sold out? Oh, they've been sold out for months, yeah, and campsites too. Um, However, I would encourage people, don't let that dissuade you. Here in Denver, it will be a 93% partial eclipse on August 21st. That sounds really impressive. And as a partial eclipse goes, it is. However, it is nothing, nothing compared with the awe of totality. It's only if you're in that 70-mile-wide path across Wyoming or Nebraska. It starts in Oregon and ends in South Carolina. You have to be in that path to experience uh, the total eclipse where it goes dark in the daytime and it's only there and only for that two and a half minutes or so that you can take off the eclipse glasses, look at the sky with the naked eye and actually see the sun. And the sun is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in the sky. The sun's outer atmosphere, it just, it shimmers and it looks like this wreath that's been woven from silk or silvery thread. Mm. It's, it's, if you've ever seen a picture of it, a picture just doesn't convey the majesty of it. It's a life-changing experience. And I saw my first total eclipse in 1998, and I now chase them all over the world because it's that special. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. It was my pleasure. David Barron of Boulder is a former NPR science correspondent and the author of American Eclipse. We've been talking about the total solar eclipse that will pass just north of Colorado and Wyoming in August. Barron will be speaking at the Boulder Bookstore tomorrow night and at TEDx Mile High at the Ellie Hawkins Opera House on July 7th and 8th. And finally today, Brest, France, became Denver's first sister city in 1948. The long relationship takes a musical turn later this year. Four Denver bands will head to Brest in October to perform. They are Morning Bear, Nasty Nachos, Wolf Island, and this band, Poets Row. Smiling for grinning 
Denver's band Poets Row with the track Knobby Knees. They'll head to Brest, France this fall as part of a sister city music exchange program. A number of French artists intend to come to Denver next year. That's our show for today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR's Colorado Matters. A 